Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2,279. You interested in buying a classic car or maybe selling a classic car? Well, today we're going to talk with a gentleman who can help you and his association with another big company who's been on the show before who can help you as well. So be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in Miraville. Now, you got to say that right if you're in Tennessee, Maryville, Tennessee, with a very special guest by the name of Daniel Curtis. Daniel, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear? And are you ready to release the clutch? Oh, yeah, Mark. Let's do it. Well, have some fun. Now, I understand that you live uh, very close to the tail of the dragon, so you get to go have some fun rides, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's something that the locals really enjoy here. And uh, we get the North Carolina Skyway, too. There's just a lot of beautiful drives. And uh, if you ever come out this way, hit us up. We'd love to take you on some of the fun back roads. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like fun. Now, before I give you a proper introduction and we dive into this life you created for yourself, which, which is oh so cool, what's one little thing that people may not know about Daniel Curtis? That I have a brother and a sister, and they're both very much into cars. My brother more so than my sister, but it sort of runs in the family, which is pretty fun. Oh, that's cool. That's very, you know, that's kind of unique and rare, I I believe, from what I've heard. A lot of my guests on the show come from families where there is a love for cars, but there's a fair number that say, my mom and dad had nothing to do with cars, or my brother didn't like cars, or my grandpa never liked cars, and somehow it just falls into the genes. But in your family, uh, motor oil kind of runs in the in the blood. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we uh, had two cool cars sitting in the garage growing up. It was a 69 Corvette that my mom had and a 65 <laughs> Mustang that my dad had. So. Oh, my and they gosh. Yeah, they weren't perfect by any means, but they definitely set the tone for a lot of things. And uh, we got into hot rods pretty early. So. so I'm trying to imagine three kids in those cars. How, how does that work for going to the grocery store? <laughs> you know, good, good question. In all fairness, they gave us a little bit of spacing. So my brother and I have three years between us. And then my sister was not an accident, just a little miracle that came a little bit later. I so, like the way you put that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so we had a, we also had a Pontiac Grand Prix just to keep things semi-practical. Ah. What's funny, though, is every car that my parents have owned, it's always been a two-door. So even the Grand Prix, it's a two-door. It's a 97. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we, we made it work somehow. It's just sort of funny. And then, you know, at some point, your high schooler starts driving, which was me first, and then my brother. So we all got spread out between the cars and made it work. So. Oh my gosh, that's cool. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. My dad had a 49 MGTC. That's what really started it for me. I was only five. And I, I don't remember this, but I remember the stories because I don't remember being five. I remember uh, my mom saying when he brought her home, she's like, well, where the hell are the kids going to sit? <laughs> and there's a little deck on the back of those, if you think about it. And there's a little bar that runs across the back of the seats. Oh my goodness. Well, we sat back there and he called that the chicken bar. And he said, if you're chicken, you hang on to the bar. But if you're not, you put your hands up. Now, today, be arrested for child endangerment. But this were different times. And those cars, they weren't really that fast either. So, uh, But I do remember hanging my hand over the side once and touching the tire and burning the heck out of my finger. Oh. Yeah. And my mom was upset. And my dad said, well, he's not going to do that again. So I don't think we need to <laughs> worry, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, different times. So uh 
kind of fun. But it captured your imagination. It got you oh, into gosh. it. Like you said, it doesn't have to be a fast car, but as a kid, you see these things, and it just it, the wheels start turning, literally, and you start to get interested in them. Yeah, it set the hook. And that car was uh, right-hand drive, so he had a spare steering wheel Super that he cool. would give me when I was sitting in the left, and I would hold it, and we'd pull up next to people, and they'd look down and go, is that little kid <laughs> driving that car? You know. So, yeah, it was fun times. Uh, it didn't last that long, unfortunately, because it just was not practical. But my dad sure loved it. I remember he used to have to crank it sometimes in the morning to get it going, you know, because it was uh, kind of a funky deal. But uh, <laughs> ah, good memories. Well, let me give you a proper introduction here. Daniel Curtis is an American automotive enthusiast with a love for Mustangs. Back in 2020, he turned his passion into a career when he founded Classic Auto appraiser and appraising and inspecting business classic auto appraiser has allowed for many opportunities to meet awesome people from all walks of life and help them with their collections whether it be a c10 pickup truck or maybe a ferrari testarossa automotive enthusiasts are the common link and that's what makes the job fun daniel recently had the opportunity to team up with our friends at classic.com as one of their quote-unquote pros as a pro you help other people sell their cars while advising them on the more technical points including the current market valuation and where the vehicle falls into the market according to conditions options and equipment talking with owners about their cars and doing our best to serve them is what they strive to do there at classic auto appraiser and of course classic.com we'll be back in just a moment but first a word from our sponsor so give them a little love and we'll be right back years ago when it was time to renew my collector car insurance policy my carrier's rates went up way up but my usage was the same and i never made a claim i didn't even have a ticket so what's with that so i turned to american collectors insurance has your collector car insurance recently raised your rates for no good reason tired of paying an annual membership fee then it's time to look around and call american collectors insurance i shopped around i asked friends for recommendations and found a winner that I can trust. And boy, I'm glad I did. I saved hundreds of dollars every year and slept better at night knowing my baby was properly insured. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting vehicles since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by their history of taking great care of their clients. What could be better than that? So give them a call and ask for a quote today. 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866 224 9324 and protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Are you thinking about selling your classic or exotic car? Do you want to list your vehicle at an auction but aren't too sure about where or how to start? The pros at classic.com, well, they can help you out. There's a lot involved in putting your car up for auction. And if you want to represent your ride in its best light, You'll need quality photographs, videos, plus an accurate and detailed write-up, not to mention being available to handle the tough questions from qualified buyers. The process can be a lot to deal with, and mistakes can cost you thousands of dollars. Your car is unique, and your marketing plan should be too. My friends at Classic.com, well, they're here to help. They'll handle all the details from an inspection, from a qualified professional, detailed photo shoot, an accurate written description, and your car will be represented to an extensive market by the pros at Classic.com. Be smart and do it right. Talk to a pro about selling your car today. Go to Classic.com slash cars yeah. That's Classic.com slash cars yeah. And tell them Mark sent you. So, Daniel, we are back. So I want to start with Classic Auto Appraiser. 
How did you start this business? Uh, kind of give us a little bit of a backstory of what led into this, because you're the epitome of the perfect cars, yeah, guest, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, people who've wrapped their passion for cars into their careers, and you're doing it. So give us a little story here. Yeah, Mark. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I uh, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, Classic Auto Appraiser was really, it wasn't even a per se a passion project like so many things are. It was an opportunity that I just hadn't realized previously. So I think I should start at the beginning with this. I grew up in Maryville, Tennessee. I'd always been turning wrenches, whether it's a hobbyist thing, but I also worked at auto auctions. So cars, value, selling, meeting dealers, or at least getting to see them go across the block in their cars. I started to you know, see this whole culture uh, come about, and I really fell in love with it. And it was just the oddest stuff because... While the auto auction I worked at didn't always have, well, it rarely ever had when I was there, Ferraris or Lamborghinis. They had their special supercar days where they'd sell these things. But I just, I liked the common things. I liked learning the different options that came with each car. And I mean, it'd take something as simple as a a 99 Mustang Cobra just to make my day. And (laughs) I got super hooked at an early age. And I just, I fell in love with the cars and seeing the people I worked with, because some of these guys, they've been doing it for decades. The cars they loved, when they showed up, they had a story to tell or they had something to point out to me, and I I was learning. It was just super cool. And fast forward a little bit from that, um, I go to college, and cars were on my brain. It was always my hobby, but it wasn't going to be my career because I was always afraid I could never make money with it. And at the end of the day, a a career has to have some sort of monetary incentive because you have to pay for things. You (laughs) have to to live. You have to provide for your family. After a couple years, I realized that, hey, there are people that do the valuation side of this. I pay an insurance agent, and while that's neat and all, there's a guy that goes out there and either looks at damages done to a car or if it's a very odd car that they're not so sure about insuring, they will get a specialist out there to look at it, to do a condition report on it, take pictures of it. And these are things I already did. I already looked at cars with fine-tooth comb when I'm buying for myself especially. Uh, Now, granted, I can't buy Concourse stuff. I usually bought what people would call junk, and then I would restore it to something that I thought was a drivable piece that I liked, and if I got lucky... Or maybe not so much because sometimes I fell too much in love with the car. Someone make an offer on it. But all that to say, every car guy knows how to look over certain types of cars, especially the more you're around them. And if you're a hobbyist, especially now, you're taking pictures of cars left and right. So these were things I already knew how to do. And I just had to figure out how to get into the industry. It's fascinating. You know, a lot of people don't realize that these types of careers exist in this position uh, exists. I've had several people on the show here who do this for a living. I even hired somebody, as my listeners know, last summer to help me sell a car. So it could kind of remove me from the process. And we're going to get into how you help classic.com in a minute, because that's part of how you've scaled and expanded your business. But before we talk about what you're doing with classic.com as one of their pros, I'm going to ask you a couple questions when it comes to buying and selling selling cars. What are some of the most common mistakes buyers make when they're going to market to look to buy a car? So honestly, this may sound really obvious, but for a lot of people, I know that time is just something that we have less and less of each day. So you have to make these decisions, uh, maybe not on a whim, but you have to make them quickly, especially when you're looking at a car that's going to auction. Some of the biggest mistakes I have ever run into is people having me do a pre-purchase 
inspection, but it's post-purchase, so it's no longer a pre-purchase inspection. Oh. They have <laughs> so already, after they've already bought it, <laughs> right? So we offer a pre-purchase inspection, and we name it that because we're trying to help you make a a decision that has a lot of passion and a lot of motion involved in it, but also has a lot of money, and you want to make sense out of the purchase. You want it not necessarily to be an investment. It's not a four hundred one k, but you don't want to be upside down the minute the gavel drops and you bought this car, right? So. The idea is we get out there and we are the the eyes and ears. We're the boots on the ground for these people. And we want them to have the best representation, the most objective representation of this car and where it falls in the current market. Because as much as you might love something, maybe it's better to not buy it at that time. Sounds like emotion is part of the problem here. I had a friend back when I was in college who wanted a Porsche so bad and he couldn't afford one. And we drove from San Diego up to L.A. to look at this car. And he asked me to come along and he said something very smart, although he took none of my advice. He said, (laughs) when we get there, you talk me out of this car. Now, his philosophy was if the guy selling it saw someone trying to talk him out of it, maybe the guy would bring the price down. <laughs> Which, okay, that kind of is a philosophy, I guess, a little bit. The problem was he'd already bought the car in his mind and he'd never even seen it. He wanted it so because the price. Well, when yep. we got there, we realized why the price went away. This thing was a mess. I mean, there was rust everywhere. It was, oh, it was horrible. And he was already talking about how do we put it on the trailer? And I'm like, Robert, stop. This thing. <laughs> Anyway, I think that's kind of what you're saying is is people making decisions after the fact and feeling rushed when that's the last thing you should do when you're especially buying, well, buying any car really, but buying an older car, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And you're you're just right. You're so right, Mark, because we love these cars. So it's going to be an emotional experience as much as we try to separate ourselves from it. And I think that's why it's important to have, well, either an appraiser or an inspector or a pro. Yeah, exactly. And that leads me to my next question, which will evolve into what you're doing with Classic.com. What are some of the most common mistakes sellers make when they're trying to sell their vehicle? It goes both ways, honestly. Uh, underselling the car for some people and sometimes overselling it. And maybe we see a, tin, a tad more in the overselling direction simply because, well, it's my car. You know, I know this car. I have experiences in this car. And it's really hard to separate the experience and try to not put a value on it. We so often have these associations and these things that have happened, and while they're maybe big life milestones or very important memories to us, it doesn't add value to that car in particular. Yeah, exactly. And that's tough. You know, you don't want to knock someone down. So there are really good conversations we have with people to give them a more realistic view of the car, but I don't think they're harsh. And they're conversations. It's, it's two-sided. Well, exactly. So that evolves into classic.com and what you're doing. As my listeners know, in fact, they're an advertiser this month. They're they're trying to get the word out. And I've had some people on the show involved with classic.com, including the founders. What they're doing is hiring people who are professionals to help people and providing a service to sell their cars. So they're bringing in this person such as yourself. And I did this last summer when I sold my beloved Orange Crush, my Porsche Turbo I'd had for 13, 14 years. I brought somebody in to remove me from the process and, and kind of set me straight because all my friends had said, oh, your car's worth this much. And I started to believe that. And even though I probably know the market maybe a little bit better than the average person, maybe not, but that's my impression <laughs> of myself. And it was the best thing I ever did. Best money ever spent. He really defined for me the market. He came in, took pictures, posted the car for me, did all the interactions, which he even told me, Mark, stay out of it. 
Don't don't <laughs> even make a comment. I, I know you're going to die. And I had all these people emailing me. Want you know? I said you need to just talk to. I hired a guy named Rafi. Um, so let's talk about what Classic.com is doing and what has you so excited about working with them. Yeah. Honestly, it looks very similar to what you described. Someone comes to us with a, a beautiful car, a car that they have a connection with, or maybe just a car that was in the family or that they aren't as connected with but own, and they, they're trying to send it on to the next good home. We try to do all the legwork possible without having to involve that owner. And that's really ideal from what you experienced, Mark, because then you're not getting even more emotionally involved and wondering, is the car going to a good home or whatever questions you may have. And the best part is classics.com has been doing the valuation side of this for a long time. I've been pulling comps from them before I even really understood what the pro did. And um, so it's classic auto appraiser. I'd seen a lot of their raw data and I was like, wow, these guys really know the market. Wouldn't it be cool if they'd help people sell cars? <laughs> and then there it goes. They're helping people sell cars. I'm like, wow, they, they're just on top of this. They know what they're good at. And they obviously have good interactions with people to make this happen and happen as quickly as they're making it happen. Exactly. You know, I went to a, a it was a uh, estate sale way is way back when I lived down in San Diego and it was out in Rancho Santa Fe, which is a pretty affluent place. And I just went out with a friend who was looking to buy some things and I went right to the garage. Everybody was in the house looking at all this <laughs> stuff and I'm out in the garage and there was this beautiful Mercedes sitting out there. I think it was a, I think it was a, an SE and maybe a 300 or a 220. Oh, um, wow. Pretty car. You know, it wasn't Concorde, but you could kind of sense this car may have been in its original spot, you know. Um, and so I walked in and asked the people selling all the stuff in the house. I said, how much for the Mercedes? And he goes, oh, yeah, that was the owner's car. Um, I don't know. And he threw some number and I went, that's way too low. <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay, this guy doesn't either, either know what he has or something. And the owners, they were the kids of the, the couple that had passed. And I pulled the guy aside and I said, uh, I think you're doing yourself a disservice with this thing. You need to find somebody who knows these cars because the price he just quoted me, if you're willing to let it go for that, I'll buy it and I can sell it tomorrow for five times that amount. <laughs> and wow. the guy goes, really? And I go, yeah. And I'll tell you, long story short, later he contacted me and he goes, oh my gosh, Mark, turns out that car was something really special. We sold it for all this money. And he goes, I want to send you kind of a finder's fee. And I said, no, no, no. I mean, it's your dad's car. And, you know, he goes, but, you know, they didn't know what they were doing. They were they were selling furniture. They had a new cars. So the point of the story is hire a pro, <laughs> to quote unquote, classic.com <laughs> pro, who can really help you do this the right way so that not only if you have more than you think you have, but I think in many cases because of auctions these days, we see, you know, we, we're coming off of some big auctions, Amelia, uh, Arizona auctions, and people see a car like theirs go across the block and sell for some crazy number and they think automatically their car because it's close to the same year or the same year make a model that their car is worth that and that may not be true right absolutely and that's that goes back to why you get the pro they know the equipment they know the options they know what the difference is and even things that may seem like little things to people who don't just completely 
have their lives surrounded by cars all the time. And this may seem like a, a giveaway, but I even had a conversation this past week with a gentleman. He wanted to know he was trying to sell a uh, it's a Super Snake, a 2010 Shelby GT500 Super Snake. And I was like, well, is it a wide body or not? And he's like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, that's a that's a big thing to know right there. And that's, uh, yeah. why, we, that's why we get pictures. That's why we get this information, because it, it could be a fifteen, twenty thousand dollar difference, especially in his case. It's a it's a rare car and it's more desirable, especially with the options he already had. So knowing that one point, if you went to market and it was a wide body and you didn't market it as one, you sold it for the figures you were seeing just the normal super snakes go for, you've done yourself a disservice. Point being, hire a pro, hire a professional <laughs> that can really tell you what you have. And, and maybe in some cases you thought you had more than you did and maybe you don't. You know, well, this isn't a K-code Mustang. Uh, it's just kind of a basic one. Yeah, C-code, um, yeah. two-barrel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's not quite what you thought it was. I think it's great. You know, I want to talk a little bit about you and maybe challenges with the profession you have. No doubt you've run into some challenges because you deal with people and their cars. There's a lot of emotion <laughs> involved with this stuff, of course. Is there maybe one big story without naming the names that you can share that was a big challenge for you, but when you look back, it helped you learn a lot more so that you could do your job better? Absolutely. And this is actually, I think it was my third time out on the job working for myself. Um, and just to clarify, before I started Classic Auto Appraiser, I'd done a lot of contract work because I, I wanted to do more than just have my own personal experience and all these previous experiences at different places. I wanted something that was comparable on paper, but just not under the name Classic Auto Appraiser, which I would own and operate in the future. But third time on the job, <laughs> I go out to see a a custom hot rod and that those are tough <laughs> they are because a lot of them are frankenstein cars and they're scary because when it comes to the vin you're like well this is this is actually a volkswagen but it's a volkswagen pan that someone made look like a model t that has a small block chevy like these are cool things and as a enthusiast and someone who builds as a hobbyist like i think those are neat neat things but quality starts to be a problem with some of those builds especially when People don't know exactly what the car is worth, and they have a figure in their head, and you get out there. So, for instance, this this car that I went to see, it was a custom built. I think it was it was an older Plymouth. I don't want to say a year because otherwise I'll I'll botch it. But it was a 30s or 40s Plymouth, and in all honesty, not one I knew a ton about. So I was gonna have to go home and do a lot of research on it. But there are certain things that you just know over time what to look for does the car have a lot of fiberglass in it and so you start talking to the owner because that's what i always do i want to make a good first impression i want to get to know the person i want to know what they know about the car i don't want it to be an interrogation either i just want it to be a conversation so we start talking about this car and he says well yeah it's an all-steel car and uh, it's in really good condition you're not going to find an inkling of rust on it so we're standing at his house, and then we walk around to the other side of his house, expecting to find a garage, and the car has been sitting outside. And I'm like, well, that's fine. Maybe he just pulled it outside. Upon a little further inspection, grass has grown up around it. <laughs> it looks like it's sort of been sitting here a while. I get my paint meter out, not that I always start with it, but it it's just good practice to, to start looking. And this is where things get awkward, is whenever these jobs that ideally I'm talking to people and we're just having a good time having conversation, it should be a 30 to 45 minute job. I stood with this car running a paint meter across it and doing a lot of visual inspection for about an hour and a half. Mm. And, you know, I, I kept trying to just keep the... Uh, 
tension. Well, I was trying to not have any tension. And the gentleman that was standing there was like, well, sir, if you want, you can uh, go inside. Uh, obviously, you can take the keys with you. I've already heard it start. We went on a little test drive. I let him drive. And I just try to feel everything through my rear end and through my feet in the passenger seat. Right. He just really wanted to stand and talk, but that opens up an awkward moment where, well, they start asking a lot of questions because they're like, well, why are you running the paint meter here? And it's like, well, because this isn't steel. This is fiberglass, so it's not an all-steel car. And then it just starts to be strange and and weird. but Awkward. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Yeah. very awkward because this may have been a really nice car to him, but – from an objective standpoint, on the grand scheme and the scale of like what I look at on a daily basis, this just this was a good driver quality car. And everyone wants well, maybe not everyone, but a lot of people want to believe their car is either excellent, if not concourse, especially if they don't know what those cars look like. And this car, it was just sad because the longer I looked, the worse it got. And yeah. those those are my least favorite ones because then you start finding rust where there was metal on the car. And you're like, well, this just isn't much of a car. This is like something that's been through a cheese grater and it's got a lot of fiberglass slapped on it. And you and you never deliver these things harshly to the person. But it, as he stood there and asked questions, I, I also wasn't going to dodge his questions. And I was going to answer him as rightly and as nicely as i could honestly Uh, but that was a good experience because it was hard it was my third time out in the job the first two were honestly pretty easy and um and this just sort of uh shook things up by getting a car that was not standard or something i knew super well and it was probably the longest amount of time i'd had to talk to someone about their car and tell them things they probably didn't want to hear and not for the sake of telling them but because he was asking me so but we left the transaction well. Um, he understood more about the car, and I I think it honestly was an appraisal. I think it was a pre-purchase inspection, so that car did not get bought by the party I was doing the inspection for. But it was a good experience, and it made things that were similar or difficult in the future less difficult and gave me better ways of saying things, possibly, or interacting with people. So Yeah, learning decorum, and these things, again, they become emotional hiring a pro to look at it that can be objective (laughs) versus subjective uh, can really help quite a bit on both sides, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And it keeps, whenever both people can be honest, it just makes the job so much easier. Oh gosh. Yeah. Well, you have to be for sure. You know, I want to talk a little about you and and your love for cars. Is there a special vehicle in your life that you can share a story about? (laughs) There is. It's not much of a vehicle right now. Um, (laughs) Oh, okay. A work in progress. It it is. And the story that goes with it is, uh, it it was probably painful at one point, but it's really something to laugh about at this point because it's just something that happened in the past. But my first car was that Mustang that my dad had. It's a 1965 convertible Mustang. And it is the car that got me hooked. It, it, It really just got me so invested in the hobby. High school was a mess because I would just draw pictures of the car and <laughs> draw out all listing cylinder heads that I wanted. It was not a numbers matching car. It was honestly a Frankenstein car, which is funny because I may have just uh, implicated myself as being one of those guys that butchers Mustangs. But this was a, this was a <laughs> 90s car and it was a straight six car. So all this was done a long time ago. And um, it, it had really seen maybe a a better life before I was born because, and I think rightly, my my parents, they prioritized raising me and my brother and eventually my sister. So this car sort of sat outside. And of course the Corvette got to sit inside (laughs) (laughs) along with the Pontiac. And so what was that once nice Mustang became a Rustang. And 
<laughs> the Rustang was my first car, and I really fell in love with it. I mean, it's funny the things that you thought so much about in high school that really don't matter. I was embarrassed by the amount of rust this car had, if I'm being honest. It sounded great because it, it was a 302. It had a top loader four-speed, a normal open eight-inch rear diff, but it had discs in the front, oversized drums in the rear, and it was just an analog, fun car to drive. And because it had sat for so long, I had to fix a lot of things on it on a high schooler budget, but things got done right, and it was it was just... It was the learning experience I needed because I would read Hot Rod Magazine, I would read Mustang Monthly, but there's nothing like getting your hands on these cars and turning wrenches. And for something that had sat as long as that car had, because it probably sat for at least five years or maybe more than that, you really had to go through all the systems. It was more than just a, oh, change the fluids and, well, you know, this ethanol gas has gummed up the carburetors. Like, no, we need to rebuild a lot of stuff. Drop the gas tank, maybe get the trans rebuilt. You need to put all new gaskets in the exhaust system so you don't die of fumes. Like, it was just, <laughs> it was fun. And every week, I feel like there was another friend that came over that saw that car, and despite it looking not nearly as pretty as a, a 2010 Camaro or a 2011 5.0 Mustang, all the cars that were big when I was in high school, um, they liked this beat-up 60s Mustang that sat on Prager <laughs> 500s that was a a dark red color, and then obviously it had a couple rust patches in it. But it was neat, and it just sort of evolved and evolved and got better and better, and we got to the point where we were putting fiberglass on it because I was going to make a GT350 convertible out of it, which, yeah, I mean, obviously it wouldn't be real, and there were only a handful of those that Shelby ever made, gift couple to the secretaries, but I never really cared for the originality part of it. I was just looking at making something that was going to be really neat to have at car shows and something that was fun to drive, because like we had talked about, we live near the tail of the dragon. That's not to say we go all the time. We don't go as much as we probably should, but we do drive our cars a lot, because what's the point in having it if you're not driving it? These things were made to be driven. So we have a lot of fun with our cars, and um, the sour part of the story is it's the sen- it's summer of senior year, and I have had this car on and off the road because things would break, so then it would sit, and I would work on it, and I'd take it back out, and then maybe something else would go bad on it, and then it'd get a, a new coil pack or a new distributor, new plugs, whatever it took. Um, but very much like the Mustang story you had told me earlier, the one thing I never changed, and I wish I had, or the tires. Tires, yeah. And this is where the story gets not so great. So I'm coming home from my lawn care job, and I had just gotten the car back up and running. So I go drive the car because you just want to you want to test it out. You want to make sure it's good. Some rain comes, that's fine. This car it drives in the rain, it's fine. Now there's no ABS, there's no traction control. Everything's very mechanical and analog. So I make it through my practice loop, and I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Let's do it one more time. And it was just sort of stupid because I had done my test drive. Everything felt good, and I I went back out towards this stretch of road. If you live in the Blount County area, it's the 13 curves, and it's just a series of 13 curves that are pretty tight. Some parts are somewhat switchbacky, but it's got some nice, uh, nice radiuses that you get to take. Mustangs are live rear axle cars. Any elevation change, especially in the rain, things can get dicey. Mm-hmm. So... The rear end got upset, and I wasn't even—this is the part that kills me—I wasn't even really driving that fast, but after looking at the tires, they were starting to show cord, and 
it's no. just one of those deals where if you had, if I had taken the time to spend money less on a fiberglass hood or a fiberglass deck lid and put money into tires, this is actually, I guess, a story about safety. Yes. <laughs> Prioritize tires. Buy tires, people. It's worth it. It can save you. It can save your car. And thankfully, we'd put shoulder restraints in this car. So I had a three-point belt in it uh, as it, opposed to just the lap belts because I went off the road and I actually struck a fence post and oh went to it. Yeah. So it was it was the scariest wreck I'd ever had and ever will have, I hope. And it actually totaled that car, at least by insurance standards. So car goes up on a wrecker. We get it home. We start looking at it. And it's a bent radiator support. And it actually did their unibody car. So they don't sit on a full frame. But it had bent the front frame rails a little bit outside, almost like a toe out. So great car. Love it to death. But it's been sitting for a long time. And as many memories as I have with it, it's just weird because I can't let go of it because I still have plans of things to do with it. If I were a sensible person, Mark, I would sell it and buy something (laughs) that's actually worth the money because I'm going to spend more money on it, getting it straight, and then starting to build it again than it's going to be worth. But at the same time, it's the car that I learned to do all the stuff that my dad taught me about hot rods on. I understand. Yeah, and my brother and I, that's the car that we just drove and made a lot of fun memories in. So it's... uh, that's probably the car that got me into it. That actually is the car that got me into it. You know, maybe you need to hire a pro to give you a reality check. <laughs> you know, I take my own advice, but unfortunately I can't be objective enough. So yeah. you probably need to ask Joey or one of the guys. Yeah, yeah. Hire somebody at Classic.com who can give you an outsider's look in and say, you know, time to let it go. Move on. Um, and, uh, do something different, but, uh, I understand. Yeah. Check those, check those day codes on tires. I've had a bad experience. It could have gotten really bad. Um, and that's the, the thing. That's one of the questions I've asked people when I buy old cars, how often do you drive it? Because cars that sit are typically not very happy cars. They may look really good, but when you get them and if you want to drive them, you're going to spend a bunch of money getting them <laughs> roadworthy. I, I take it from a guy who's done it many times. Yeah, absolutely. And there's no shame in starting with your tires and suspension. That's honestly probably the best thing you the could do. The smartest place to start. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And Although more power is a lot of fun. It just doesn't do you any good if it never makes it down. <laughs> uh, no, no, or through a fence post or something like that. So if you were a, a car... I'm going to be a car psychologist. If you were manifest or reincarnated as a car, what would you be and why? Oh, man. This is tough. I want to be a Mustang, but... Yeah, well, that's not the question. I know. <laughs> that That is unfortunate. I'm a very... I think I would... Depending on who you're talking to, I'm going to say unfortunately, but I would probably be something like a 1996 Jeep Cherokee. Okay. It's a very, and you know, the four liter straight six variant, an unkillable engine. It's somewhat gutless, but at least it gets you places and you can always count on it, even if it is a little hot on the temp gauge. Um, but very practical. It can haul people, it can haul stuff, and it can go just about anywhere that you want to go. And I guess the way that really translates to me is as much as I would want to be a Mustang, I don't know if I'm so much performance minded in my life so much as I am persistent. And um, anytime I've come across a failure, I've tried to learn from it and just be persistent and be adaptive four wheel drive, like what a Jeep has and try to overcome. Um, But yeah, I guess I'd be an old beat up 96 Jeep Cherokee. Probably a nice one. (laughs) That's okay. I saw where they uh, just rolled the last one off the production line. They're killing that name yeah uh, jeep cherokee so yeah on to the next thing it'll probably be called the jeep electric key or something like that (laughs) yeah if if it's Uh, what everything at chrysler's turning into oh gosh can i return fire mark what would you be 
if you were oh, reincarnated? Uh, I, you know, I, I answered this question because I've had a couple guests on the show. I think the last one that asked me this question was Tommy Kendall, the ex-race car driver, <laughs> uh, who I had on my show for my thousand show. Uh, Porsche 911. There you go. And, and most people go, cheap answer, Mark, you just like Porsche 911s. But no, um, because <laughs> I tend to be very bulldogishness. I mean, who would do 2,279 podcast shows? Seriously? <laughs> yeah. And the 911 is a brand, I think it's one of the onlys, maybe in the Mustang, but Mustang kind of came out when the 911 came out, that's still there. They're still yeah. making the basic concept of the car. They haven't changed it. Same with Mustangs. They're still Continuous a Mustang. production. Yep. Excuse me. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Porsche 911 for sure. I, I, since I'm, I'd be something from the early 70s because that's kind of my high school time and so forth. Nothing like the, the new cars have gotten kind of too big and too fancy. But uh, and fuel injected. I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Some fun stuff. So let's talk about a book. Is there a great book you'd like to share? Honestly, um, I have some great authors that I would like to share. Okay. And some of them are older names, but I think they're good at what they did. And I honestly, I probably should have done a little bit more research because I don't know if he's around anymore. But Jerry Heasley, um, he wrote the very one of the very first books that I picked up. It's called The Ford Mustang, 1964 to 1973. And it deals with first-generation Mustangs. And it was written in the 70s. Just at the tail end, I think this book is 78 or 9 on the copyright, but it's an identification book. It's a great history book, and it was at the time that those cars – I feel like we lose so much of the information that was just right there being circulated, whether it was verbally or just because the cars were – they were normal cars. They were being driven. They were being maintained by shops. You could get as many examples as you want and compare them. You could look at Ford markings and see what those markings were. And um, this book is definitely the right book to become an expert, in my opinion. It's definitely helped me in identifications, and it's got a great uh, little data table in the back where you can decode, which you can do online, but it has production figures and everything else just in a, a handy, smaller book that you could put into a laptop case and carry with you wherever you want to go. Very nice. How does uh, Jerry spell his last name? So I get that right. It is H-E-A-S-L-E-Y. Just as it sounds, Jerry. Yes, sir. Okay, Jerry. Great. Awesome. So I'm going to enable you to go on the ultimate drive today. I'm going to park anything in your driveway. Don't worry about the price because I'm paying. (laughs) You can take it anywhere. And here's the key thing. You can take anybody with you, including somebody who's no longer with us. Somebody's from the past. So. Oh, wow. What does this drive look like for you? You sort of changed it right there with someone who's no longer with us, somebody yes. in the past. Yeah. You, you had told a similar story before we got this, um, got the podcast rolling, but Carol Shelby is just someone that I wish I had met, but if I'm being honest, I was graduating high school in 2012, so and that's when he passed. So I, I hate that I missed the opportunity, and I probably had opportunities to go see him. I just did not take them. But for my ultimate drive, it would probably have to be Man, this is tough because I like so many of these different cars. <laughs> oh, man. I know Ford versus Ferrari came out, so this sounds like such a cop-out, but it would be a 1966 Ford GT40 Mark II with a mm. 427 side oiler, and it would be Carroll Shelby. Nice. And the road? The road would have to be really straight because those brakes really burned <laughs> up on those cars. So yeah, I yeah. probably, uh, ironically or not, I'm not really sure what it is, I'd take it to Germany, get it on the Autobahn. And have as much fun as we could stand or until it ran out of gas, which would probably be just a couple minutes. So <laughs> I think it would stand out. Yeah, that would be pretty, pretty darn fun. I, I, you know, I only 
met him a few times very briefly at events where I went up and got an autograph and said hello. And uh, But the man is such a legend. I've had so many authors on the show that have written books about him. And I think one of the funnest evenings I ever spent was with Peter Brock. At his oh, home. my goodness. My wife and I were invited to spend a weekend with he and his wife and Gail. And, and we sat on his porch overlooking the lights of downtown Las Vegas. And he told me some stories about Carol and working with him way back in the day and just some wild stories. And yeah, that's a guy that, what a life. I mean, just, you know, I mean. And he started it young too. Peter Brock got into that as a young man and got to see a lot of interesting stuff. I I just love the Daytona Coupe story because no one thought it would work. And here's this kid who sketches this thing on a napkin and they take it out to test and actually just blows the doors off the standard open top. Yeah, well, it's a brilliance of Peter Brock and so many things he did. I you know, learned a lot of things about Peter when I had him on my show. One thing was his time uh, building hang gliders. And, huh. Uh, yeah, that they designed, he designed a hang glider that broke a world record for the longest flight. So, um, yeah, he was, or still is, he's obviously still with us. So, uh, doing some amazing things. And, and of course the trailers that he built, which are like no other car trailers that you could buy. So yeah, uh, great job. Nice trip. Well, you've taken us on a nice trip and I wondered if you could leave us with, um, some parting words of wisdom or advice. Yeah. Um, be persistent, which may sound a little silly in a, in a world that just wants to shut you down or doesn't want to give you a second chance, which is fine. But, um, if I had let my first year of appraising affect how these the subsequent years were going to be, I, I wouldn't be doing it. I, I would have said, well, this was a nice try. It didn't make enough money. I really enjoyed it, but it's not realistic. And um, I think surrounding yourself with people who are going to support you and, and love you is a, a huge factor in that. I'm, I'm grateful to have a, a very supporting wife, but pursue your passions and your dreams and um, – I think if you really stick to it and you're persistent and you look for the opportunities, they will come about kind of like classic.com. <laughs> yep, absolutely. How can people learn more about Classic Auto Appraiser? Yeah, uh, you can look us up because we've got a couple different web pages. You can find all the different Classic Auto Appraisers um, in various different states because we do range from doing work in California to Tennessee. But if you want to see me, um, Google Classic Auto Appraiser and put Maryville, Tennessee after that or check us out on our Facebook page which I can definitely send you links for that. And then we also have an Instagram and a YouTube account as well where we update with various walkarounds and startups and we go on some test drives too. Everything from Model Ts to late model stuff. So Awesome. Cool. I'll put links to those on Daniel Curtis' show notes page. And of course, if you want to learn more, and you should learn more about classic.com, go there. We've got a special uh, webpage for you to go to classic.com slash cars. Yeah. You can check out their pros. You can uh, check out what they're doing with people like Daniel and others uh, to help those of us that want to buy and sell classic cars the right way. So classic.com slash cars. Yeah. Want to do a, a special uh, shout out. Thank you to Linda at classic.com. She's the one that put me in touch with Daniel today. So Linda, thank you very much. Daniel, thanks for being so generous today with your time, your expertise, and for sharing all the fun you're having in the car world. You're doing it right. Until you and I talk again, my friend, I'll see you down the road. Sounds good, Mark. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. They're talented and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkage is about driving, restoring, collecting, and firsthand experience at collector car auctions and more. 
They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. If you're listening to this program, there's a pretty good chance you believe what I believe that the collector vehicles we love are more than just a means of getting from one place to the other. They're a part of our culture, our identity, and as a people, they bring us together at vintage races, classic car auctions, and thousand-mile rallies. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these important vehicles aren't lost to time. RPM stands for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship. And their goal is to inspire the next generation of vehicle restoration professionals through its outreach programs. And they include Shop Hop, Off to the Races, the RPM Future Class, and many others. These programs engage talented young people across the country and connect them with mentors and a variety of opportunities in the industry. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of collector vehicles skill trade, visit rpm.foundation today. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah. Yeah.